calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. I'm kind of hearing a, a weird noise in the back. Oh, oh, sorry. I, you know, it's, it's actually the window washers. Let me let me move this. Wow, really they're quickly. really like excited. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're they're really going at it. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me here on Repin. I'm Evelyn, your host. The world has been gripped by a pandemic oftentimes making us feel like we're in some sort of terrible science fiction movie. But there have been real life heroes, first responders, like the healthcare workers. And around the world, people had been applauding and recognizing their hard work, dedication, courage, and self-sacrifice. But what happens when you're celebrated and vilified simultaneously? My guest today was in that exact position He's a doctor from a prestigious New York City hospital. He's been featured in Time Magazine, and he's been on the front lines fighting to save lives. But he was also vilified because he's Asian American. Hate crimes against Asians are on the rise. Today, he shares his experiences of what it was like being in the trenches of this killer virus, how it's impacted him, and what he's witnessed. And he also talks about what it's like to be in this strange position of being both revered for his work and also discriminated against because of his ethnicity. Say hello to Dr. Chen Fu. Dr. Chen Fu, thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule to guest on the podcast. And when I say busy schedule, I don't even understand what I'm saying <laughs> when it comes to you know your situation. Before we get started, I need to ask you this question. When I say, how are you to most people? I you know, just mean like, how are you? But in your case for 2020 and 2021, it's been an unprecedented time for everyone, especially frontline responders like yourself. You're an attending doctor at a major hospital. We're in New York City. Can you talk about how this year has been for you and, and what that question means when I ask you, how are you? Yeah. You know, you pointed out a very interesting fact that that question kind of holds a lot more weight than it used to, especially when we talk to friends, loved ones, and family. 
I think I am in a place of constant healing, just like many other people are, and in a place of forced healing. And while I can't imagine what other people must be going through, I will say that I am at a much better place now than I was a year ago. The last year has been a challenge, to say the least. A lot of things have happened that I never could imagine would happen in my lifetime. In one way, it's, it's kind of amazing to think about and difficult to reflect upon. But in another way, it's camaraderie of suffering. This privilege of pain is something that I reflect upon a lot. It's kind of like breaking up with a loved one or a spouse or, or a partner in some form. And the dramatic aftermath of that, thinking to yourself, wow, I am in so much pain and it's incredible to imagine that so many other people in life and in history have gone through the similar pain. I think we all as a collective conscience are going through uh, the same thing right now, that there's so much pain out there, there's so much healing, and then there's so much to be said about humanity that we have the capacity to sort of progress from that all one unit. And so there's, there's a unification in that suffering and in that pain. Uh, all that is to say, I'm, I'm doing okay. Tell me a little bit about your background, your family, and also some of the values that you, you know, grew up with and were drilled into you. Um, <laughs> and also in a loving way, in a very loving, yeah. you know, well-intentioned way. But yeah, give us a little bit more about your background. So I was actually born in China. I was born in Beijing, China, and I was never supposed to come here. So my dad, actually, he went to med school in China, which at that time was just sort of starting to open up and just develop. And there was a period in Chinese history where all of the schools were closed by the communist government. Um, schools were kind of looked at as a little bit too bourgeois for the values that they represented. For a good period of time, schools, especially professional schools, were just closed and off limits until uh, the Chinese government started realizing that they needed engineers and doctors and, you know, the intelligentsia because they provided benefit to society. And so my dad was part of that generation of people who got the first taste of school as it started opening mm. up. And so he went to med school in China. And then he looked for a job in the U.S. because that was the land of dreams, the land of opportunity. And Chinese megua, like literally translates out into the beautiful country, mm. which sounds even more honorable than the homeland of Zhongguo, like the, the middle country. Like what even is that, right? Right. And so he was trying to chase that American dream of, of going over to the U.S., but quickly realized that... Uh, America doesn't really recognize Chinese med schools, especially after they just opened after a decade. And so he wrote something like 70 or, or 80 or like 100 something job applications and he got one response. And uh -huh. so he went over first, a uh -huh. little bit after my own birth. And then my mom followed him afterwards. And then my, my grandparents raised me for a little bit. And when it came time to send me over to America, I was blocked by the Chinese government. I didn't realize this. They said that I was too young to go over to America, that um, you know, I had to be raised in the Chinese tradition, and they denied my visa over there. How old were you at that point? I was two years old at the time. I'm sure that was a whole process, but when did you come to America? I came here at three. I came here at three, so I did most of my growing up here. You talk about being raised with certain values. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
the uh, the the initial thing that I really learned to value was Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's, <laughs> and so definitely not exactly <laughs> what I was going for, but okay, that's cool. <laughs> raised raised in the American ideal, but really seriously, I I have these distinct memories of of coming to America at three and then just being enamored with the carpeting because I'd never seen anything like that. Or with like KFC and pizza because I'd never had anything like that, and just thinking to myself, "Wow, this is this is amazing. Right. This is amazing, amazing on the level of my dad's mustache because I'd never seen anything like that either." So I guess there are a lot of firsts for me. <laughs> wow, Asian facial hair, pizza, and KFC. There's so many yeah. ways that we can go through with this. <laughs> Let me ask you this: in terms of the value system that you had, being that you were brought over, your parents, you know, have the 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 traditional value system. What sort of values did do you remember your parents giving you then that still you actively exercise and hold in the forefront of your life now? You know, far and away, I think the thing that my parents taught me through um, their own actions and the way they carried themselves was this, a value of self-sacrifice. And I think it's something that was really deeply instilled in me and and will constantly be be something I carry forward and, and probably mm. try to instill upon my progeny. I think it's something that's pretty uniform in a lot of Asian upbringings. I, I talk about this with, with my friends who grew up in Chinatown in New York or, or even with employees in the hospital. Back during residency, we rotate through one of the largest and most renowned public hospitals in the nation, a hospital called Bellevue Hospital. Mm-hmm. They call it the hospital of the world because there would be people who would just drop down at JFK with a sign that said, take me to Bellevue, please. Yeah. And they would, they would come over yeah. to, to Bellevue to seek treatment. And of all kinds. And of all kinds. Oh, my goodness. So many languages I didn't even know existed yeah. until I rotated through Bellevue. A lot of stories from that place. Very, very yeah. valuable treasure in America. But one of the janitors there I, I would talk to all the time because he was also Mandarin speaking. He didn't speak English very well. And I remember bumping into him once on Christmas Day. I, I, you know, struck up a conversation with him. I was just, I was just like, "Hey, what are you doing here?" Because you know, I have to be here. I have no choice. But like, you, you don't have to be here. What are you doing here? And he, he told me, "Oh, you know, I'm working overtime because I've, I've been taking up every single overtime shift I possibly could recently." And I was like, "Why are you doing that?" And he says, "You know, because my kid goes to Columbia University and his tuition's expensive." Oh, wow. And just sort of that, that idea of just sort of self-sacrifice for the betterment of, of the future of the kids is, is something that I, I felt very deeply growing up with my parents. Every time they, they kind of, you know, skipped meals or offered me food, you know, at, at the sacrifice of themselves. I'm sure you could probably relate with this. Every time as a kid, I would walk up to my parents and if they were eating something yummy, I would say, oh boy, that looks really good. The immediate next step that they wouldn't even think about was handing me that food that they were eating yeah. or like, you yeah. know, being like, oh, you, you think this is good? Yeah, here, here, take this, you know? And it's just like without a second yeah. thought, right? And, you know, sometimes it can get like irritating when you're sort of sitting there watching a movie and your mom like forces these cut oranges or these cut apples <laughs> or these cut fruit on you, you know? <laughs> the oranges, you had me at the oranges, yeah. <laughs> For any non-Asian listeners, for some reason, Asian parents constantly put sliced oranges in front of you or nectarines. Like when you're at the movies, you just wanted popcorn and you're getting yeah, yeah, yeah. oranges. You, get, you get cut watermelon or something like yeah. that. Like, I want popcorn. <laughs> no, I'm having orange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's something that 
you know, even even in yes. the midst of your annoyance comes from a place of love and caring. And it's, yes. it's the way, you know, they show their affection. And it's something that I feel like it's become part of my core. Yeah. I mean, you know, these values and these seemingly little things really m- mark a much larger theme or lesson, right? Like in terms of like self-sacrifice, you know, the oranges thing, I think only most Asian people would get. I'm appreciative of it now because it is absolutely an example of self-sacrifice. Ken, you were profiled in Time Magazine. So that's kind of huge. (laughs) And you did a video too, where we met your parents. I mean, there were so many amazing things and powerful things in that piece. But I have to point out something that I thought was like huge. Being Asian, the culture is really not known for being outwardly expressive. Yeah. Like at all. (laughs) Yeah. But your parents said they were proud of you and your dad. I mean, my God, your dad called you heroic. That is incredible to hear. The Asian culture, again, I cannot stress enough, it is not outwardly emotional. And we don't talk about these things. For them to express that to you, that was like kind of huge for me. Was that, did that hit you the same way? Or are your parents more outwardly expressive? Yeah, no, I, I teared up a little bit. My <laughs> my dad is is probably uh, your stereotype of a stoic man. <laughs> The only other time he ever told me that he was proud of me was when I was when I got accepted to medical school. And you're absolutely right. Like the Asian culture tends to be more of a show of affection rather than a say of affection, mm-hmm. which is good and bad in its own form. But uh, my dad didn't really even know that he was being filmed for time at the time. Uh, sorry, no, no, no pun intended. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. He, he didn't realize he was being filmed for this piece, and to have him sort of say that actually kind of really struck me um, pretty hard. And yeah, that was a very special moment. Yeah, that was pretty profound. Yeah, to say that, I, I wish that like words could kind of carry intention a little bit better because when I say that was a very special moment, I'm, I'm, I'm at this time thinking about all of this past history that I've shared with my family and just growing up and watching my dad work and, you know, obsess over my grades or obsess over tangible accomplishments and things like that. And just thinking of all of this, how he tried to model his own hard work, how he held everyone up to an unbelievably high standard. Like just being able to say that it was a special moment, I I wish could convey the weight of all that history, but it it really can't. (laughs) No, it can't. And even in terms of the Asian culture showing love, it's kind of very different from the American culture, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. It's, it's just a very different way of expression. Yeah. Much more reserved. That was just such a special, impactful moment. But I wanted to kind of jump ahead a little bit. You're an attending doctor in a, a major New York hospital. A part of the gig is dealing with loss, yeah. high stakes, literally life and death. But when you have COVID, And it's unlike anything we've ever seen in our lifetime. And the amount of devastation is incomprehensible. Your normal amount of experiences with loss is exponentially more. Can you talk about what that's been like for you? Because, you know, we've heard a lot about first responders and you certainly fit that bill. You've been in the trenches day in and day out. But we don't really know what that day-to-day was like. Can you give us a snapshot of what that was like for you? Hmm, yeah. I actually called probably the first intubation on 
our, one of our first COVID patients in the hospital. I remember taking a look at the guy's CAT scan and thinking to myself, how is this man talking to me, much, much less breathing right now? It was, it's, it's honestly a moment that I'll never forget. But you know, just looking back on those early days of COVID when there was so much uncertainty, it went from you know, one or two patients on our floor, and then those one or two patients were the talk of the town. A week later, having an entire unit filled with COVID patients and having it not be the talk of the town, but rather like a sort of tangible fear that, that you could palpate throughout the entire ward. Watching that transition in the early days was interesting to say the least. I think probably there were difficulties throughout every phase of, of, of March, uh, the height of the pandemic last year, March and April. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. In the initial phase, the, the main difficulty was uncertainty. It's like how a lot of people are, are afraid of the dark. We were definitely doing medicine in the dark. At that time, we didn't even have a, a COVID test yet. All our COVID tests had to... Right. Do you guys remember when... Um, and remember. I'm sorry, I'm speaking to, to, to everybody, including the listeners yeah. right now. Uh, do, do you guys remember when uh, all of our COVID tests had to go through like these little CDC outposts in the state? You had to like send them out somewhere, right? You had to send them out and then you had to wait for two days before you got yeah. a response. And right. like we were doing like everything that we could to try to get an answer sooner because we were running out of hospital space and we had to decide whether to cohort this patient with like, you know, another patient in a two bedded room. I mean, every second counts, right? Every second counted, right? And here you are waiting for two days to figure out what the hell you're doing. And you're waiting for 48 for a test, whether or not we have to treat this patient like COVID, which honestly, at the time, we didn't even know what we were doing. But you know, at the very least, we could, we could get a heads up. And you know, we were doing all these creative things to try to like figure out whether or not someone had COVID without the test, like we were getting CAT scans and people like at this time, there was like no medical literature to describe what we were doing. There were case reports coming out of China and patterns that we were noticing, but nothing definitive or cohesive yet. And so we were like, you know, you know, squinting our eyes at CAT scans being like, is this what COVID looks like? You know, maybe, maybe this is just like a really bad pneumonia. I, I can't really tell. Literally practicing medicine in the dark. Exactly. Literally. Literally practicing medicine in the dark, like uncertain of what to do, uncertain how to treat people and uncertain even how to diagnose people at first. Once we sort of got more information rapidly, the difficulties began to mount on a human level. Mm. You know, during the peak of the pandemic, most hospitals probably in the world didn't allow visitors for very, very obvious reasons. But one of the things that that did was it made it so family members couldn't be with their loved ones as they passed. And just so seeing all of that play out on an iPad in front of you was so jarring. It, it, it really was like being an interloper or, you know, a voyeur watching somebody's most deeply personal moment 
you know, this moment of saying goodbye, this moment of passing. I remember holding the phone in front of certain patients, watching as their family members prayed over them in the final moments, saying goodbye, passing that phone over to loved ones, and just sort of thinking to myself, what could you possibly say or do in this moment? I can join in the prayer, but is it really even the same? I can, I can try to offer some words, but what good does that do when you can't be there? Right. It's wrenching just to listen to you talk about it. I can't even imagine. So many families, you know, most painful and private moment of saying goodbye. And this moment is, you know, brought all the way down to just you're holding the phone. How does that hit you and what can you do? How do you process that? Because you did that not once, yeah. but probably at a staggering rate uh, during this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, definitely more than once. To answer your first question, it affects you very, very much precisely because there is nothing you can do in that moment, right? And I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today is, is this dichotomy of identity. Yes. And this is perhaps one of the more jarring examples of that. And what I mean by that more specifically is throughout the pandemic, a lot of folks were calling healthcare workers heroes. Right. A lot of my friends and colleagues and a lot of other healthcare workers that I know actually actually felt pretty guilty that people were calling us heroes. Guilty? Yeah. Yeah. We, we felt guilty and we felt like we really didn't deserve that title because here we are uh, just in this incredible moment of powerlessness and helplessness, you know? Everybody I knew was struggling in, in overtime to try their best to help these people, to try their best to save these people. And, you know, sometimes you, you just couldn't do it. You felt powerlessness. Definitely not like, you know, a hero coming in and saving the day. You felt like just a mortal coming in, trying to save the day and having these people die in front of you. A lot of folks that I know got into medicine got into healthcare because they wanted to make a difference. Right. And seeing people back to back that you couldn't make a difference with was a very alarming experience for a lot of people. The thing that's striking is, again, you know, loss is a part of your job, unfortunately. Yeah. But this has been a pile on and your efforts are proving, I would imagine many times over, futile unfortunately, yeah. because yeah. this virus is so deadly. How do you keep going once, you know, you're working your face off? I mean, you've worked endless hours in a shift, right? Yeah. And that shift isn't like one or two COVID cases. I think you said that in one point of time that you went from like three cases to 350 cases. Yeah. It's spiraling out of control. And you're witnessing these devastating moments of loss, but it's multiplied times like a thousand, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would guess that you worked endless shifts, you haven't eaten, you haven't slept, and then you look out the window, there's more ambulances, and they're bringing, you know, lots of sick patients, there's panic everywhere you turn, and you're witnessing multiple moments, like the moment you just described. How does that impact you? Like, how do you keep going? The greatest strength that I draw upon is my community around me, my good friends, and my faith. I draw upon this vision and this idea that there is something greater. Whether that be being a part of a 
a group that loves you or whether that mean being a part of a belief of something greater than you. I think it offers people a lot of comfort. So one thing about sort of sitting there and watching a lot of people die is that the finality of of it really really strikes you. The finality of your own existence suddenly becomes a reality. So I think I think people our age we're we're not used to thinking about the inevitability of death. Right? It's not something that's really programmed into us when when we're when we're younger. No. Definitely not. That's why so many people are out bungee jumping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, when you're sort of sitting there and watching people go through it constantly, you really realize that you're going to have to go through it. It's really kind of hard to, you know, see somebody right. who's sort of sitting there dying and not picture yourself hooked up to all those machines. It's not picturing yourself in that process. One thing that you kind of realize after seeing so much death around you is that not everybody dies the same. There are some people for whom their true values in life kind of become ever so clear in that moment of death, you know. There are some people who who sit there talking about all of these great accomplishments that they've made or all these buildings that are named after them. There are some people who talk about the great stories and memories that they've made, the trips that they've had. There are some people who talk about all the regrets that they've had. Those people are the ones that I feel very sorry for. And then there are some people who are just surrounded by an all-encompassing community. Folks for right. whom their room is never empty. There are always visitors every hour, different people coming in, saying hello, saying goodbye. You begin to realize that it doesn't have to be a deeply unpleasant experience, that it doesn't have to be a wholly dark moment. Mm. That's a lot to that's a lot to process. Yeah. You begin to realize the weight of your own decisions in life and how that kind of defines you. I'm putting money on you having a, a room full of people. <laughs> and I'm gonna pay off the ones that are gonna come to mind. <laughs> when you're sort of the witness to so many moments like the one that you had just described earlier, did it sort of encourage your sense of humanity or did it sort of shake it? It certainly encouraged it. Watching the height of the pandemic and watching everybody in New York, just people's response to this, it was, mm -hmm. it was a very powerful moment for me. We talk a lot about how you see so much malignancy in the media nowadays, and you so, see so many people who are doing such evil things. Yeah. You see such heartbreaking moments and some, some you know, unification-breaking moments, so much separateness in the world. But then- Right, right. In this moment, in the height of the pandemic, when people needed other people desperately, it was incredible watching how so many around us offered their support, offered, you know, togetherness and offered anything that they could. It, it gave me such hope and humanity seeing, you know, these doctors who had been out in private practice, these fancy you know, midtown plastic surgeons or these, you know, old retired pulmonologists who came in as volunteers to help us see patients. You know, a lot of these people who are in that exact demographic that we knew right. if they got COVID would suffer the most coming in and volunteering without pay, without without recognition, without anything to come in and just help alleviate 
the the staff help see these patients. It's, it's honestly like a man made out of logs running into a fire to save people. Seeing the restaurateurs, oh man, this really inspired me. The, seeing the restaurateurs just offering to, to cook us meals, to send us food, even though we, we knew that their businesses were suffering, for them to just offer up free meals to everybody, to feed us at night, to feed us in the, in the afternoon. Ah, geez, it, you know, it, it kind of brings a tear to my eye just, just thinking about like how in the midst of human suffering, universal human suffering, people can just say, no, no, as much hurt as I'm feeling, it helps me to help others. And I'm just going to bring you as much joy as I can. That's beautiful. Like, I, I feel like a lot of people didn't have a chance to be on the receiving end of that. But let me tell you, it, it was it was a very powerful experience. In such darkness, it's hard to see the glimpses of light. And whatever little light that does come through, it comes through quite brightly, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, that brings me to something that you said way more eloquently than I could ever say, which is a dichotomy of identity. <laughs> you are both celebrated and vilified at the same time. You're celebrated as a, as a doctor. And vilified because, unfortunately, the Asian uh, community is under attack. And I think you were actually uh, had a minor incident in the subways on your way to work, right? You were wearing scrubs. Yeah, yeah. And um, somebody sort of tried to start something with you. Can you talk about that position that you're in? Yeah. No, there, there are a couple of moments. The one that you you talked about was this moment when I was waiting in the subway and someone came up and just started yelling slurs, <laughs> um, you know, stupid Chinese, things of that nature that I won't, won't repeat here. But very luckily had the fortune of a man like just walking up and just telling this guy off and saying like, no, don't you dare, you know, kind of like being that barrier between us. And you were wearing scrubs, right? Yeah, I was wearing scrubs at the no, time. It's yeah. clear you're a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, nobody yeah. was out in that time anyway, right? Like New York was yeah. completely shut down. Uh, this was this was a time when New York was mostly shutting down. This was kind of like the early moments when it was when we we're kind of teetering on that precipice of shutting down. Right, but New Yorkers don't walk around in scrubs if you're not a yeah, doctor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. So what happened? Like, how did that hit you? And what kind of vantage point does that give you? Like, you're right in the middle of this weird, like, what would you even call it? Like, purgatory state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is actually a really good question. Something that I've thought about a bit. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't the, the the last time this has happened, right? You know, like it, it wasn't the last time that someone yelled slurs at me, even while wearing s scrubs. Even like patients in the hospital, like yelling slurs. You know, Wait, what? People will say some darn tootin' things when they're like delirious, you know? Like it's. <laughs> Are you kidding? Some patients have yelled racial slurs at you while you're in the hospital trying to help them? Yeah, but you know, like in their defense, they're very confused. And, and so, like, when, when folks are, are confused, you know, they will say things. It's okay. But I am much less tolerant of people who say those things when they're fully lucid. One of the examples is, uh, you know, in, in Bensonhurst, there are a bunch of flyers that were just posted everywhere that just said, you know, like, the Asian plague or something to that nature must must be eliminated. Like, you, you should not be allowed here. Then they, they, I think they misquoted Einstein saying something along the lines of like, <laughs> of course, you know, when you're going to lend your strange theories, credibility, of course, you're going to misquote Einstein saying something about how, you know, like Asians are subhuman, which I'm, you know, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure, you know, Einstein never said. Yeah. Yeah. Things, things of that nature really, really get me a little bit more. 
I tend to not get angered very easily, but right. But stuff like that kind of gets my goat. Right. Luckily, the next day when folks went back to go see this, somebody had posted over all of those signs, every single one of them with a flyer that said, we will not tolerate racism in Bensonhurst. This is a community for everyone. For your listeners who don't know, Bensonhurst is a neighborhood in New York that is rapidly becoming more and more predominantly Asian. It, it was very directed and very intentionally directed towards a specific audience, you know? I love New York, though. I yeah. really do. It's <laughs> like, you know what? We're going to just, we don't really put up with a whole lot. Yeah. You know, there's this notion that New Yorkers are rude and people can say what they want to about New Yorkers. They just think we're busy, but we're direct. You yeah. know, and we basically, when when push comes to shove, we step up. Oh, yeah. But in terms of having that, those moments of, you know, like you just set up, the the poster or the subway moment where somebody accosted you, and clearly you are a doctor that is fighting tooth and nail to minimize some of the loss and devastation, literally putting your own life on the line. Yeah. And you're getting vilified at the same time. What does that do to your identity? You know, I've, I've had the fortune of speaking with a lot of Asian professionals, either in healthcare or elsewhere. Mm. And um, talking with them, it seems like a lot of people share this sort of identity and idea. I feel like being Asian American is fundamentally a dichotomy in and of itself, right? You are at once neither Asian nor American fully. So many people will tell me that when they go to Asia, they don't feel Asian. When I go to China, I don't, I don't feel Chinese, and people can tell that I'm not Chinese, right? Same, same. And when I'm when I'm here in America, like people can very clearly tell that I'm not American. I was in Tanzania. I, I would tell them I'm American, and they would ask me, "No, but where are you? Where, where, where's your tribe? Right. Where are you really from?" So rectifying that dual identity is something that, as Asian Americans, we've all had to do just for all of our lives. And it's, it's tricky because it makes you feel, A, like two people in one body. And so the chaos of that is, is constantly brewing in people's psyche, right? Right. Even in boarding matches, when you, when you watch the World Cup and you see America against China, you're like, whoa, well, who am I supposed to root for here? Or um, Yeah, that's a good point. While you're eating the oranges. While you're eating the oranges, exactly. Or getting this feeling that you have to be a constant ambassador for yourself. And that feeling that you have to walk on eggshells because everybody around you is constantly judging you, you know, like being yeah. this constant ambassador in America for Asians, because you, you just know that if you, if you mess up driving, it's just going to feed into a stereotype, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and simultaneously going to China and having to be a constant yeah. ambassador there too, being like, no, 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 I promise you, not all Americans are loud and rude. Like we can yeah. do this too. Right. I, it's so interesting that you're bringing this up because I didn't even think about it this way, but like, I don't know where my place is, per yes. se. Yeah, exactly, right? One of the big challenges to having this dichotomous identity, so to speak, is that you never really know who your tribe is. You never really know where your home is. And, you know, growing up in California around a lot of other Asian Americans, it seems like a lot of people would either choose the Asian tribe or the American tribe and go very hard in one direction. But I think the beauty of being without a, a, a clear definition of home is having the opportunity to be a nomad and being able to jump back and forth between so many different cultures, experiences, and places. One way to kind of look at that is that even though we don't 
truly have one stagnant point where we can call our nexus or we, we can call our home where we fully belong. We have this privilege of being able to kind of, kind of belong and kind of seamlessly walk in between many different human experiences. So to quote the immortal Bruce Lee, like be like water? Be like water. <laughs> Flow back and forth yeah. through the dry areas that you see in life. And you know, we have the opportunity of being uh, being able to hydrate and give life to a lot of different deserts, not just the one that we see in front of us. Yeah, no, I love that. You know, it, I, it's always been such an interesting um, struggle. The, con- the connection between Asian American and being sort of of no place, but of both places at the same time, how is that connected directly? I think I know where you're going with this, with the l- being celebrated and vilified as a doctor, as a first responder, as an Asian American. Is that feeling the same as being Asian American and sort of the same challenges and and experiences of like being quote unquote fluid, I guess, in this work in the, yeah. in, in this conversation? Yeah, no, absolutely. On on the one hand, while it does create a chaos of identity within me, it I recognize that it also gives me an opportunity to speak with the people who celebrate me, to speak with the people who vilify me and be there and be a bridge to sort of rectify those opposing views. But isn't that hard? Because you're like, let, let's say, I mean, I don't know if there's a specific example, but this is the, what I guess I'm hypothetically saying. You've worked double shifts and you're treating a patient and the patient is difficult because you're Asian American. How do you process that? Yeah, you, you do meet people even within the hospital who sometimes have these views. I remember distinctly this one moment and in the VA, again, this was during residency of meeting somebody who, you know, didn't like his Asian nurse, didn't like his Asian care team, et cetera, et cetera. And then you found out when you kind of met Mm -hmm. him and rather than sort of like completely break away from discourse and just completely break away from, from engaging with the person, when you kind of met him and asked him why and probed a little bit deeper, you realized, hey, he's a Vietnam War vet and his best friends were killed by by the Viet Cong mm-hmm. back in the day. And so he's always harbored this sort of pseudo PTSD sort of trauma from that. You're much, much better able to sort of come down and meet him. You know, The people who celebrate me push me forward towards the people who vilify me. And I'm able to sort of walk down and sort of see them a little bit more as as human and you pointed it out that that it's hard and yeah. it is hard it really is hard to engage with people who actively don't like you but you know what healing is hard healing is tough sometimes you you get poked sometimes you get prodded and sometimes you get cut open but you just got to do it otherwise everyone's going to sink even deeper i like the way that you put it one of the difficulties with having so many different disparate identities within you is that you feel like you don't really have a footing you can do one of two things in the midst of that. You can either fall down or you can pick your footing up and try to dance in, a, in this beautiful imbalance. Awkwardly, right? beautifully clumsy. Yeah. You know, I guess the question then becomes is when does that clumsy position start to get exhausting? Do you ever have a moment where you just want to be and not have to constantly be an ambassador of sorts? I mean, do you ever just feel like I don't want to I don't want to treat you because you hate me and you're yelling at me and you hate me because I'm Asian, but I'm here working my ass off trying to save you. Yeah. Yeah, you feel that all the time. You definitely do wish sometimes that you could just sort of stay in one place, but you know what? 
here I am and this is what I do and I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to define my life and die the way that I want to. And this is my process of doing that. That's really beautifully said. Now, I want to quote something that you said, and I'll paraphrase this. Uh, You said the generations are defined by the challenges they overcome. For example, World War II. It's been called the greatest generation of all time. In terms of what we're going through, how do you think history will look upon us? And how do you think this will define us? And how does this experience define you? Well, I'll I'll tell you when we're done writing it. Fair. (laughs) You know, uh, that's a really good question. And that's a very deep question. Yeah. I hope this moment defines us as a people capable of self-sacrifice, like our parents are. And I will work and strive towards making that a reality. Despite being vilified in some areas or by some people. Especially because I'm vilified by some people. With all the things that you've seen, the spectrum of humanity. Yeah. Emphasize spectrum of humanity. What's the one thing that that you're going to take with you throughout everything that you've gone through in the last, either specifically through this pandemic or in your career and life? That people can be good and that they're not worth giving up on. That's awesome. Okay, Chen, sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. Hmm. My name is Dr. Chen Fu, and I represent Dancing on the Precipice. Thanks so much to Dr. Chen Fu for guesting on the podcast and for his tremendous work during this pandemic. Reppin is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms and every episode is available for download. So don't miss any of our incredible guests. And don't forget, subscribe, share, and leave a review. I'm on Twitter at Reppin Podcast. So talk to me. What did you think of today's episode? What about past guests? What surprised you? What inspired you? And we get real and we go deep on the show, but you know, we do have fun. And there is bonus content where you can get to know our guests in seconds, exclusively on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. To the man who does such a great job and cares so much, thank you to Nelson Pinero, my musical composer and technical director. Always love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.